Welcome to the Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub Podcast. AGS is a leading provider of agronomy services, exclusive products, and unrivaled customer support. Underpinned by a well-qualified and experienced team of former sports turf managers. AGS. Supply. Consult. Support. Hello everyone, I hope you're all well. Welcome back to another episode of the Turf Hub from AGS. My name is Matt Lebrun and today I'm in conversation with Jeff Webb, the CEO of the GMA. So Jeff, welcome to the AGS Turf Hub. Thank you ever so much for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Great, and how are you doing? You well? We're okay. Yeah, we're, we're like the rest of the industry, trying to get away from this pandemic and build back up again. Yeah, it seems to be kind of light at the end of the tunnel on um, on a few things now, which is good. Obviously, Soltex is just a couple of months away. Yeah, it's, it's uh, all guns blazing for Soltex, really. And um, yeah, really encouraging that we've got the exhibitor base back that, that we were looking for. And um, early indications are that the visitor profile is looking good as well. So. Fingers crossed, it will be a great, great event. Yeah, it normally is. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And I think everyone's looking forward to getting back to some sort of normality. Absolutely. Um, I, I mean, I think the thing is for us as, as well is to deliver a responsible show too, mm-hmm. um, because obviously everybody will have some fear of the impact from the pandemic, but uh, we're going to manage that with, with the venue. And I know with the NEC, they've got very good protocols in place. So I'm pretty confident that we'll, we'll have a as secure show as we can make it without detracting from the experience itself. Yeah, and I, and I said it to you before off offline on, on a few occasions, I thought the way the, the GMA handled the, the pandemic and the support that you guys gave uh, was really, really good. You seemed pretty hot off the uh, the press to, to be able to support online and with webinars also. Yeah, I think... Um... I mean, going back to probably March last year, uh, Luke Perry and myself um, attended a, a seminar in London and, and it was somebody predicting the future and the pandemic and had one of those bell charts that kind of showed if it lasted for three months, it could have quite a negative impact on the economy. And obviously, it's now 18 months on at least and um, we're all recovering from a massive impact on our livelihoods and our businesses, both personal and professional. So I think we've all had to navigate our way through unremitting times and something that we've never actually dealt with before. So in our business lifetimes, I think this has thrown a complete set of new challenges and you've got to learn to adapt. And hopefully I think that's that's what you, you see by the comment you made. Yeah, uh, I think it's um, you're spot on there. A lot of companies have had to... Yeah, as well as everything that's going on in the personal life and in the pandemic itself, a lot of businesses have really had to adapt how they work, how they communicate with customers, how they cope with things without traveling. With with a fact of the times of where we're at with technology, luckily we've been able to, to do that, adapt and have a really good communication, even if we aren't traveling. But yeah, I think there's been some really good guides out there uh, and some good support so far. Yeah, I think also just credit the workforce. Mm-hmm. Um, working in, in such tough conditions, I mean, we know obviously many, many professional setups have furloughed staff, and the staff that then were left to do the work were doing probably double the work. So there's been a lot of pressure on uh, ground staff to deliver the various services across the sports. You know, I, I can recall cricket season being cancelled and that came on the back of extreme weather conditions alongside the pandemic. Also Brexit impacting on, you know, the supply chains and how you do business generally across Europe with, with our borders, etc. So it's almost like a perfect storm for the last two years, which we're all trying to now reassess and reevaluate. But, um, you know, when, when we look at just what's being produced and, and the way services are managed these days. I think it's, it's a credit to the industry because obviously ground staff do their role, but also the products and suppliers like yourselves have a big role to play in that as well. And everybody was impacted by the pandemic, there's no doubt. And it, it's just really heartwarming to see how the, how the industry's responded to the challenges, actually. I agree. And I think um, there's been a lot of people who have 
adapted in, in positive ways and tried to make the best out of a bad situation and move forward and progress and try and em- embrace um, you know the, the, a few positive changes that we can take from that. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I think in, in the case of, we, we kind of split the, the kind of sports area into two categories really. You've got the, the voluntary market, which is in itself huge. And as you know, we engage now heavily with the governing bodies, but, but one of the recent successes we've had is the extension of that programme to include both codes of rugby. So we've got rugby union and rugby league that we're now adding to football and cricket. Uh, to go out and support and assess pitches and I know now we've done I think it's uh, around about two and a half thousand individual site assessments which equate to over seven and a half thousand actual pitches where we've gathered data and what we're doing by having a proactive program like that is actually interrogating all that data and working out trends at a local level at a, at a kind of county, county-wide level or a regional level and then building a national picture from that. And that's helping drive and inform funding programmes which are so critical for our sector and actually getting a much more proactive approach to the investments that are then made thereafter uh, and mapping out the skills attainment levels that, that you also need appropriate to the kind of sites that are out there. So a lot of our work during the pandemic, for example, was adding the education aspect to this and we've now got online over eight courses from a standing start of nothing since March last year um, which are introductory courses for a volunteer who's never engaged in our profession before or wants to do it as a refresher right through to sort of foundation degree level coming through Um, and we're working through the various sports as well so we've got winter pitches, uh, we've got summer sports, which we've just developed online, level ones and twos for both football and cricket, for example. So all in all, a lot of work been going on, but um, it's just a continuous development program, really, that, that we're into. And um, hopefully it's making an impact and hopefully the supply chain can benefit from that as well, because best practice methodology means that, you know, if you go in with the right outlooks and right outcomes everybody benefits from that so i completely agree and i think it's um you know we've been working with you in a in a couple of county fa's um hearts fa beds fa and working on that continued support that customer journey of where does it start phase one with pitch power the interaction the detail that you get from that the funding that then comes from that and how do we spend it in the in the best way to get the best results long term and have it to be sustainable across the course of years to come. It's certainly starting to, to push forward now, and I can see real improvements across um, across variable counties. And you've got quite a quite a target ahead of you, I believe, haven't you, for pitch improvement? Yeah, well, we, we worked to the FA's target in football, so they've identified, I can't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but I, I really you're looking at 20,000 pitches being improved across a 10-year period. So there's short, medium and long-term goals attached to that. So we're helping manage that ambition, really. And some of, some of the innovations that have come in since the what's now called the Pitch Advisory Service Programme, formerly was, was the Grounds and Natural Turf Improvement Programme. Bit of a mouthful, which is why we've changed it. it it's... We've, we've got things like the Hive, which is um, a software system built up to help people do local pitch assessments, which means it's cut down a lot of the administration work that our regional teams were doing at source. So the travelling to and from site to then go and do a, a manual report has been taken out of the system. And that can now be uploaded and the results of the upload are then assessed by our regional teams. And then a plan of action can be put into place to make corrective actions and improve those pitches. So we've also got in, in play, which is being widely trialled at the moment, a um, framework for natural turf pitches, which is um, loosely called the Pitch Improvement Programme. And that categorises pitches from poor quality through to excellent and provides that kind of foundation that you need to sort of benchmark against as well so the initial phase of all of this is to get as many pitches from that poor level to a good level 
and that's really where the, the efforts are concentrated at the moment. And we've, we've had great results in football, and obviously now that we've got both codes of rugby, we'll mirror that across. And uh, the ambition is to improve all the sports surfaces, be they cricket, football or rugby. And we hope to actually engage more sports in that process as we go forward too. So, you know, we hope to get some sports that, that maybe people don't immediately think of, like lacrosse or croquet or hockey, alongside tennis, for example, which is, you know, has the, has the greatest grass court tournament in the world. So it, it's an ongoing process, but, but it's, it's really pleasing that we've got the buy-in, especially at grassroots level, from all the governing bodies of sports and backed by the funding bodies, which in this case, Sport England and the Football Foundation have been primary movers and shakers of. So without that support and network, it, you wouldn't be having these, these lofty ambitions and you wouldn't be getting the grant programmes that you're now seeing, hmm. which actually include kit and equipment, and you know supplies and resources, be that grass seed or uh, other kind of forms of supply chain uh, elements. Yeah. So I think again, one of the successes of the GMA having those relationships is we can then hopefully transfer that across to our corporate membership. And as I say, everybody gains from that. But uh, it's really all about best practice management. It is, and I see it working very well in synergy with uh, with what we're doing and how we can work with you guys. And uh, looking at the team uh, and the development across the the past few years, especially, you've got some fantastic members of the the GMA team now, and it's all been slightly adjusted into different sections, uh, I believe. Yeah, so we've got account managers across the sports I mentioned. So that's that's been a, a recent phase change. And uh, we're just embedding those. We've got long-standing uh, team members such as Ian Mather Brewster, whose knowledge of cricket is unbelievable. Um, and I, I think he's, he's probably one of those unsung heroes that, that you, you hear about or don't hear about enough, actually. Uh, and, but we've got a really good team across the board. And just more recent appointments have, have just embedded that, that expertise, really. Uh, led by Jason Booth, who, who you know from Leeds Rhinos days as well, who's got first-hand experience of managing high-end facilities. So it, it's a really good mix of people with, with a good skill set, and um, it's a really lively group as well. There's, a, there's quite a lot of um, humour in that group, I have to say, and a lot of challenging meetings that we, we sit down and have. But through through the pandemic, like everybody else, most of our meetings happen by Zoom. So we have an ever bigger screen of people that, that we have to kind of manage and uh, that sits alongside the, the staff that carry out membership and learning and training and the sort of sales side, be that events or Soltex or whatever. So yeah, it's quite a mix now. Yeah, I think it's good. I see, um, especially your last appointments as well. You've got Rich Easton that's joined. You've obviously got Julian I've known for a while. Yeah. Tom Rowley. Yeah, you've got a great uh, selection of people. But before we get into the kind of development that, that you guys are going to be looking at going into the future and you know potential issues that, that could be facing the industry, I'd really like to just have five, ten minutes um, on yourself just to give us a kind of brief overview of your career so far and where you started and the path that you took to get into the position that you are now. You know, so where, where it all started for you and how you developed over that time to, to be the uh, CEO of the GMA. Okay, well, um, how long have you got? I, mean, <laughs> I go back to the last century, unfortunately. So my journey started, I left school at 16 with barely any qualifications at all and didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest. But I, I, one thing I wanted to do was just back in the sort of late 70s was, was be a tennis coach, believe it or not. And uh, my, I remember a conversation with my father saying, don't be ridiculous, son, there's, there's no such profession as, as tennis coaching. So he made me do extra chemistry, which I was actually really awful at. Um, and um, I left school and went and worked in insurance for seven years as an accounts clerk doing administration work. Um, I used that time productively to get my te first tennis coaching qualification because I worked for a company called Legal and General who had amazing sports facilities at the time. And in those days, 
the social life you got from companies like that was huge. So I played mostly played football and tennis, and in between did a bit of work. Um, but then realised I needed to do something different. So I left uh, my job and went to America and took up a tennis coaching position in America and coached for a summer out there and then realised I wasn't going to do that the whole year so I better get some qualifications. So I came back and did A-levels um, straight away and in between doing my A-levels I kept going back to America for my summers and coached because it was quite a nice place to be and um, got my A-levels which enabled me to then apply to go to Sheffield University as a mature student Although I have to say, I think I regressed. I was probably the most immature student <laughs> alongside a couple of others my age and kind of relived my youth through my mid-twenties and um, ended up getting my, my degree in what was called recreation management. At that point, I had the opportunity to do some placements. And one of those placements was, well, actually it wasn't on the list that the university offered. So I, I traveled down from Sheffield um, where I was doing my degree, to the Lawn Tennis Association without any appointment and knocked on the front door of the Lawn Tennis Association at Barons Court in London and uh, asked to see the HR department, of, of which at that time in tennis I think there was only one person working in HR and she happened to be in that day. And I, I arrived on the doorstep completely bedraggled because it had been pouring, it was raining, it was a thunderstorm as I walked from the station to the reception point. And I think she just took pity on me, she gave me a cup of tea and said, what do you want? And I said, can I have a three-month placement, please? And lo and behold, she gave me the placement and the rest is history. I then finished my degree and had such a good time there that I badgered a guy for a job who became my eventual boss. And I started working on facility development for the Lawn Tennis Association, which I did for 10 years, and ended up running their major project aspect of their delivery, which is a program called the Indoor Tennis Initiative. Uh, so my job was to go out and procure tennis centres nationwide, which I did. Uh, ended up doing, I think, 26 of 43 of those around the country. It was putting in business plans, it was putting money on the table and securing the investment back in for them. And then because of that program, football had just taken off with the Premier League and the old, what was then the Football Trust was merging into the Football Foundation. And I was basically headhunted by what became my next boss, who I met at Wimbledon, and I was offered to go for an interview, went through an interview process and got a job as um, uh, run a facilities program, which I set up the grant funding program that is still going today. So it gave me a really good background in governing bodies. So, so all of that takes up 15 years of my life. Uh, and then I looked around for some different uh, roles, one of which was at the, at the point it was called the Institute of Groundsmanship, now the Grounds Management Association. And went through four interviews and was eventually given the job to take over the association it is today and ever since I've been um, messing with people's heads and trying to trying to advance the cause of the GMA but also hopefully raise the profile of the profession so I apologize for every, everything that's gone on in the last nearly 16 years it's totally down to me <laughs> I think that's, that's a, it that's a good thing is it's always interesting when I when I speak to people on here because there's always a, a kind of point um, through their career where they just kind of you know stuck at it or took a chance you know you turned up at the the tennis association sat there and yeah kind of made it happen so it's interesting to see that a lot of people i speak to share the same outlooks or ambition and uh, yeah. you know and have built up over time really interesting and then you've obviously created uh, a lot of the well the gma and where it is today just for for anyone listening who doesn't know what the, the GMA is or what your main ambitions are, can you just give us a quick roundup of, of yeah, GMA, what your ambitions are as, as a whole? Yeah, in, in a nutshell with that, um, we cover various elements, but to break it down simply, 
we've always been about training and education, which in, in these days with shortened phraseology, let's call that learning, encompassing the two areas. So I mentioned before, we, we have a suite of qualifications that you can take through us and it can take you on a journey. There's roughly six levels to, to uh, our education program, uh, which I say can take you from a simple volunteer doing a part-time role through to a leading role at, at the top stadiums, for example. Um, we're a membership body, so what we always try and do is fine-tune our membership offering and improve on what's gone before. So obviously what we offer is um, support and advice and guidance, and I think you've seen that through the evidence of what we did, as you mentioned earlier, about the, um, the approach we took during COVID and lockdown. So there's, there's always aspects of that. We publish every year um, salary guides, and I, I know a motive issue is, is the rates of pay in the industry and the hours that people work, and I think that's become more prevalent post-pandemic as well. Uh, we do a lot of research um, to back up what we think are the right strategies to then employ. As we've discussed previously, we, we've engaged di different programs like, uh, for example, the Young Board, which was an initiative that, that launched around 2007, and that's currently under review as we try and strengthen that as, as a, an area of um, challenge, if you like, because one of the factors that, that we've picked up is, is the lack of entrance to the industry, and that's come through research we did back in 2019 and we'll repeat again as we go forwards. Um, and then alongside those elements we've really got the um, events as aspect of what we do which everybody obviously knows about Saltex or if you don't know it's a very big trade exhibition, um, the biggest one in Europe actually for our market sector and uh, something we're really proud of and actually now it, we fingers crossed it's going ahead in November. Uh, without any setbacks, um, that will be the 75th edition of Saltex itself. So it kind of gives you a really good footprint of just how advanced our industry and our sector is in the UK compared to anywhere else in the world. Because I don't think you'll find anywhere in the world a trade show with 75 years history attached to it. So the infrastructure that we have in this, this environment really is I think unique across the world. I mean, obviously there are advanced countries. I know there's, there's bodies in America and Australia, etc. But actually, we we seem to be at the forefront of everything. And if you just look at what's happened with probably the Olympics, probably um, the Euros, as two good examples, the amount of UK companies operating at that level, creating the facilities for the athletes or the the footballers in those two examples to play on. It's just unbelievable if you look at the worldwide split. So we've got a great industry which we need to celebrate more and probably talk down less, to be honest. Um, I think we're very quick to criticise. But obviously, we're, one of the things I think we felt we were failing on a few few years back now and we, we took step changes to, to invest in this was communications, actually which is why we ended up with a new program last year called Grounds Week, which we're going to um, be doing again in, in uh, the end of February, beginning of March 2022. And that, that was a fantastic outcome from, from that. We reached 135 million people through having a week of intense activity with you know, a hashtag in this case attached to it, which was hashtag Grounds Week. And, and it got not only a lot of press coverage in this country, but it got it abroad as well. Um, and the reach was unreal and kind of exceeded our expectations. But, but we also spotted an opportunity with lockdown with that, which was no sport was actually actively being played. So we could talk about what our sector does to put sport on. Um, it may be more difficult next year because sport will be active again and journalists tend to talk about whether Harry Kane's leaving Man City or, he, or he's going to Man City, sorry, if you're a Spurs fan. But it's um, one of those where you've got to be consistent in your approach to communications and you need a strategy. And there's a lot of piecemeal activity you can do, but we've, we've kind of got a coordinated plan of action now. And that's kind of part of how the board thinks and acts 
and kind of looks at not just where are we now, but where are we going to be? Where are we going to be in a year's time? Where are we in three years' time? Where are we in 10 years' time, for example? Mm-hmm. So I think, I think um, I hope that explains what we're about. But really, we're there to profile the industry and those people working in it or the companies that service it. Yeah. And I, I do agree with you. I mean, the, the level of quality that we have in the, the UK, we facility uh, groundsmen, greenkeepers, is extremely high. And we probably are a bit hard on ourselves at some points with a lot of stuff. I think that's just our nature, you know, within the within the industry. We're, we're never happy. We're always wanting to, to go one further and, and be better. But with the the changes that you see coming up in the future and with the research that you've done, you know, there's an interesting one about the, the research in 2019 about young people coming into the industry. What what things do you think are, are likely to come in line for the betterment of the industry and what potential issues should be, we be aware of? I know we've previously spoken about, as I said, young people into the industry um, having more diversity in the industry, and then obviously the the sustainability uh, factor. Yeah, I mean all of those are really important factors and, and things that, that we're looking at. So I, I think rather than just talk about young people, I talk about workforce development. So there is a big opportunity right now in volunteering, which not necessarily needs to be just young people centric. So there are a lot of people who are rethinking and reevaluating their working patterns of life and seeing working in sports turf, maybe at a volunteer level, um, maybe even trying to get on a professional career ladder, looking at our sector now, because actually the quality of life has become something that everybody's really, really thinking about. And if you don't have to necessarily travel to, to work in the way that you used to, what opportunities are there for you to get out of the house and actually feel good about yourself. So I think I think there's an opportunity there. We also know that with people retiring, people still want something to do. You know, retiring at 65 these days doesn't mean you're inactive. People's lifespan is longer. So engaging people who've got good skill and experience, who may be in an older age bracket, is equally as important as facing up to the reality of the lack of entrance of young people. Part of what we've tried to do to address the challenges of lack of entrance is, is to change, we've changed our brand in the last 18 months. You could argue that our old name disenfranchised 50% of the population. You could argue that. Mm. And our new name doesn't. And what we're trying to do is make sure that we open the opportunities, whether you're female, whether you're from a black and ethnic minority, and, and that you're you have a proper inclusive approach to welcoming people into this sector and this industry. And sometimes it can be an elephant in a room with some people who I've come across and had conversations with. And it's an attitudinal issue as much as it is about numbers or age profiles or anything else. So it's how we open up opportunities and do it on an equal opportunities footing as a sector. So I think it's incumbent on all of us to just to check and challenge ourselves as, as far as that goes. It's, it's not about penalising anybody, but it's just about common sense and um, having an open mind, I think. Mm. So that, those are definitely challenges. Pay and conditions is a challenge. Um, it's a really difficult one because, as I say, we publish every year and we spend quite a lot of money on the research to, before what, what you receive from us is, is published. Um, but everybody's at different starting points. If, if I looked at professional sport at the moment, I could probably tell you that each of those different sports have different start and end points. And it's because it's probably evolved organically rather than anything else. But the advent of TV and the pressure on, say, our major venues that are world-leading brands, so be that Wembley, be that Twickenham, be that Wimbledon, be that Lords. Uh, apologies to anybody I've missed off that list, but using those as examples, they're on a global stage. You know, what they prepare is a global stage. But actually, when you compare, say, the independent school network, they are multi-sport 
facility operators who produce absolutely fantastic sports facilities for the pupils and for the schools that they serve and manage but they often go under the radar and I think you know one of the things we're conscious of is, is we want to promote that sector as healthily as some of the others that, that easily get that because of basically the focus of TV these days is on elite sport isn't it it's on focus on the Premier League it's a focus on test match cricket um, it's the Six Nations it's Wimbledon's fortnight but actually we know there's a lot more that that is there to be supported, promoted and celebrated mm. um, in the areas I've mentioned. And, and likewise, when you look at the voluntary sector, through word of mouth, where we've had impacts and we've turned a poor pitch into a good pitch, the reaction of local communities could be just the local coaches network to that pitch going from poor to good. Say you've got a league of 10 clubs. It's just un unbelievable. And what it does is sets the discussion in play and it enables Club A to tell Club B how they got there. Club B then go and repeat what Club A have done and you hope that all 10 clubs in the end meet that standard. And, and that again is a direction of travel that uh, I think we're on working with the governing bodies of sport and enabling that practice to happen. Um, the challenges are lack of budget, so let's take the local authority sector. Um, you know, it, it's, it's been a long time curse of sport, I think, at, at the front end delivery level for recreational sport, certainly in the public sector, that parks management doesn't have the resources it requires, uh, doesn't get the support um, that it probably requires, doesn't get the kudos it probably requires, and certainly probably doesn't get the budget it probably requires. There's a changing landscape because lots of local authorities who had large-scale recreation departments in the past have either contracted out, so you've got big companies as contractors operating in that, that sphere now, or actually in some of the, the um, areas I've just talked about, you've got voluntary groups doing this rather than the councils themselves. So there's a shifting sands approach going on out there at the moment, and it's how you kind of address all of that and try and benchmark against it I think so those are challenges then yeah. you've got environmental impacts I mean just look at this summer how up and down the, the, the climate's been we talk about climate change we talk about sustainability could be water management which um, is very prevalent at the moment and like to become more so going forwards how you design build irrigate your pitches or your facilities all going to be part of that mix so the whole host of things I think um, we're looking at and working out how, how do we address these and, and I think we need to do that with collaboration with companies like yourself or a wider discussion throughout the industry and the sector and, and you know what what is our industry going to look like in 10 years time mm. um, and equally challenges around trade shows etc that, that obviously we've, we've got a, a big vested interest in how will they fit with the way the world sees itself in 10 years' time? So I think you've always got to obviously cope with where you are at any point in time and have plans and strategies for your immediate business needs. But going forwards, you've got to have longer-term thinking and, and lateral thinking, actually, mm. in play to address the sort of challenges that, that exist. Yeah, and I completely agree with you as in, you know, there's a bespoke... There's this smaller bespoke challenges for, for each kind of sector and each level. So it's how you, you combine that information. I know, um, you know, you said about the volunteering sector, you've got such a diverse level of skill set, I would say, across that um, volunteer sector. From yeah, I think the big, big hole that's been missing is there's been nothing to benchmark against, and that's where mm -hmm. our pitch grading framework comes into play there. Because like I said, it, it deals with two things. It, it deals with the technical components you need to create the right optimum conditions for grass to grow in, sport by sport. But it also enables you to benchmark against people's skill and experience. And there's a lot of people who have got fantastic skill sets but never done qualifications or haven't topped them up. That's not to say the only route is you must have a qualification. It's how you blend those two things together 
to enable a rounded individual to come out of that who feel able to cope with what's in front of them. So our role is to facilitate that and to upskill people. And, and that really is a big facet of, of what the GMA is about. Is how can we maximise the skill of an individual to empower them to feel confident about doing what they need to do to create that optimum playing surface? Mm. And, and I do think now the governing bodies have definitely accepted that model and that approach, you'll see a more attainable target going forwards to effect change and to make a difference. Yeah. And you start to see examples of, of that kind of coming through. You know, you've got, um, I mean, me and you were speaking the, the other day about Groundsman Wes at Cranfield, you know, who I think is a, a shining example of that. And it's interesting because Wes quite often says to me that the volunteering on that level and what he does, he runs a successful business, but he finds the, the groundsmanship side of it and the upkeeping side of it, that's his happy place. Yeah. You know, yeah. Uh, and as you see that kind of develop and get better, the community as a whole then take a pride, uh, more pride in it, and they want to protect it and be involved. So I think there's a real good transition happening on that side. And as you said, when you go up to the the kind of top of the industry, throughout the industry, there's various different pressures that are now being kind of um, pushed forward. And I think it's communication, I think, is a key part of that of actually working with like-minded companies, organizations such as yourself, with the aim to identify the best working practices to achieve sustainability within natural turf, having a strategy and a process in place, and looking at ways that we can compare data on a national level to where we can kind of work with you guys as to education, you know, follow-up and continued support. Absolutely, I think, you know, we. We haven't been brilliant in the past as an industry of collecting data. I mean, when we yeah. first did our industry research, which was called the Hidden Profession, which is, again is probably we presented that back in 2009 from memory, we couldn't find any information on this sector. We had to start from scratch. And, and that was really effective because what it did is enabled us to sort of quantify a few things. So I, I can remember as an example that the economic value that we set on the sector, and this excluded park box and gardens and excluded at the time, I think, Scotland, Ireland and Wales, so it was only England, was the economic value to the economy was um, half a billion. Mm. We've just repeated that research with the groundsmanship sports vital professions, we called it this time. And that figure has risen to a billion. So we've been through a pandemic, we've been through recessions, but actually we've got a thriving sector. Um, you could attribute that in some ways to the rise of prevalence through the advent of TV and the promotion of sport through TV. And on a global stage, you know, we're lucky that we have got something like the Premier League that enables that to be exported either through Sky or BT Sport or wherever. And I think what that's also done is I mean, we mustn't forget that there are a lot of people interested in sport and quite interesting some of our our data that we got back is, I think it's something like 38% of new entrants come into our profession because they've actually got a natural affinity with sport. But they might not be the top level performing player. They might for some reason not be able to go into coaching. They don't necessarily want to be a referee, I guess. So they could be a really good member of a grounds team and advance their careers that way and they've got that link with the sports that they like as well so you know that that's something we've definitely seen mm. and some some brands are luckier than others i guess if you are you know one of the top six football clubs it, you're, you're probably going to have a more global reach aren't you but also what we've got to remember is is the clubs at the bottom end of that football pyramid equally need support and equally need a baseline amount of resource be that number of staff or budget or kit and equipment to enable those pitches to play well mm -hmm. and what we see too often is people shortcutting that and it really comes from owners and directors actually not understanding our sector enough and what it contributes to the end result of of their playing fields be that in a stadium be that anywhere really mm. so i think that that again is a challenge that, that is a constant that we have to keep banging banging that drum you know I, i'm i'm 
I'm shocked sometimes when I talk to people about the lack of resources given to them in what you would consider to be high-profile clubs. And I think there is a fear right now because of the impact of the pandemic on football where obviously no crowds were coming in. That The first thing that's going to be cut is ground staff's budgets or the ground staff themselves. Yeah. And I have, um, you know, I've noticed that even with the renovations this year, Jeff was in you know, football clubs and everything else are wanting to make money back. So the corporate kind of side of that was perhaps a little bit extended, which cuts into the renovation, which adds more pressure, you know, yeah. on, on that side. But I think um, a lot of it just revolves around kind of, yeah, very clear kind of data, strategy, education, and then communicating that from the, the, the bottom up all the way throughout. And trying to highlight these these challenges and these knock on effects, you know, to people who are perhaps outside of the the groundsmanship industry. Yeah, and I, th- I think you've got examples where you can clearly see it working. So, you know, if, if you took as an example what I've seen in in Tottenham, if you look at the training grounds, academies investment, there's there's a fantastic facility there that. I know Darren Baldwin was, was involved in that process. So there's there's a resource there now that, that you can train and educate people on site. More recently, Leicester City have launched their academy and John Leverage is obviously at the forefront of that. I mean, how you communicate internally in the workplace is so key anyway. And I think that's, that's again, one of the areas that, that we're keen to um, help people with is how, how do we give people, and it could be a course, it could just be, you know, we've got your back type messaging, mm. the confidence to go into, say, a boardroom, present your strategy or your case and come out with what you want. Um, you know, if you if you pull 10 ground staff from 10 different clubs at the moment, I think you get really different answers on how they did yeah. in that scenario. Yeah. And, and what we need to do is get, get it to a point where there's a baseline you shouldn't be falling below. And so... You know, we've got to educate people beyond the sector itself to the benefits. Because, I, I mean, after all, if, if, you, if you go into a church, you know, you've, you've got the altar. And that's like the focal point of the church. Well, if you go into a football stadium or, you know, Wimbledon or, or a rugby stadium, your altar is your pitch. Yeah. And that's the focus. Um, unfortunately, we just have in our stadiums 50,000 or so armchair experts who all think they can uh, manage that pitch better than the actual ground staff that do it. But also, I, I have to say through, I think, opening up much more to the media than has been the case in the last two or three years, more people in the media get it yeah. than they did before and actually are much, much more supportive of the work that goes on and profiling that. Yeah, and I have seen the even the groundsman role or the, the groundsman job has is, has evolved and changed, you know, over the the last ten years for for sure. From you know the guy that cuts the grass to the guy who's preparing budgets, doing meeting meetings with the stadium director, you know, forecasting all of the other bits and bobs. The the actual role of the groundsman is is really evolving over the period of time. Yeah, managing data, you know, it, it could be you know, it's, it's data on how the pitch is performing, it could be the data coming back from how the lighting rigs are performing to help that pitch, etc. There's so many different facets now at the top end of sport to, to manage, it is a different role. I think one, one thing we shouldn't forget though is, is actually there is going to be a challenge because more and more you've got the environmental lobby looking at how you manage in this day and age and how you manage chemicals. So we often talk about in- integrated uh, pest management, for example. You've got the banning of more and more chemicals. So you're getting back to almost, one, one of the discussions I was having the other day is almost going back to sort of 1940s style management organically. You know, So how's that going to look in a, in a few years time? How are the pitches of tomorrow going to be prepared to the, to the way they're prepared right now? If certain restrictions come into play, you know how will climate change impact the approach to water management, for mm. example? So again, 
always a challenge. But I, one thing that I'm always an optimist about, having kind of listened and talked to people over the years, is the industry really does adapt quite well. Yeah. And I think it shouldn't underestimate itself on its ability to to be proactive and, and innovate. Mm. And uh, you see that at Sortex every year. You see the products changing yeah. and the approach to products. So. I think on that side, the you, you know the groundsmanship industry is particularly what what I've worked in the last kind of seven years. But I think it's because it's just so used to getting all kinds of stuff chucked down from a from the weather perspective. You know that as a as a groundsman, you have to be uh, adaptable. You know and and be able to make a decision on on different environmental impacts, and and you're quite used to things being kind of chucked at you and changed, but. The, I do think you've got people that recognise that long-term changes are coming into place. You know, as as an industry as a whole, I said you can see it on the the product side where we're looking more organically. You know, there's there's a lot of facilities I work with uh, now across the U, UK where we're really uh, installing a long-term strategy in place of how can we have minimal fungicide usage? How can we have minimal nitrogen usage or nitrate leaching, you know, minimal insecticides, decreased emissions, uh, increased soil biology, what testing and procedures can we put in place? And what is our carbon footprint? You know, can we have a full understanding on that, you know, across the levels and going forward with the kind of chemicals that are dropping out and water management being a part of that as well? How do we cope with that? Can we still achieve optimum levels of sports turf by going, you know, uh, more sustainable? And what's the difference between the two, if that makes sense? Absolutely makes sense. And um, the other thing I would say to that is also challenge yourself on on why do we do this? Yeah. Um, I think if you can mix the the why and the how together, you probably get somewhere near the, near an answer. Um, but. From, from where I sit at the moment, I think it's this, this dilemma between the socio-economic benefits mm. of going the sustainable and the environmental impact route, um, because the cost of entry to that is, is high. I mean, just look at, I, th- I think it was on the news the other day, government giving every every household a grant of up to £7,000 to put you know green energy into your house. But, but actually, when you compare that to the cost of you know, a normal boiler is, is about five times the cost. Mm. So where's the quid pro quo? I mean, how do you how do you convert every diesel car out there to an electric car? Because the electric cars are at least 30% more than the diesel petrol versions out there at the moment. So it's going to take some time to kind of figure all of that out and price it at the right level to accelerate that argument, really. But I think it will be driven by politics as much as it will be the industry. I agree. And I said you've you've got people um, out there who are already achieving, you know, fantastic environmental um, standards. You know, where I think what we're we're trying to do and share is we'd like to evidence that. You know, as first case protocol, we we evidence that. You know, how have we done it? Why have we done it? What are the cost implications? How can we educate on that? And then what's the long-term strategy behind that? You know, and how economical is this for all clubs to achieve at different levels throughout the sector? Well, I think there's various parts of that. As we said, you've got the kind of input testing side of it with the product side. You've got the water management side, which you rightly said, which is a, a vast subject by itself. And then mechanical uh, and cultural practices. So, but I think there's there's guys and, and organisations such as yourself who are getting behind the kind of sustainable route, um, and it will be a process of of working over the years to come. But I think more people are thinking about it from a kind of legacy point of view. You know, I know for myself, I've got a little girl arriving in October, so all of a sudden I'm thinking about the next generation and the generation after that. And I think uh, across the sports sectors, it's it's going to be a really interesting research phase over the next five to ten years. 
all the way from kind of parks and um, recreational facilities, how we're working for them, what the kind of model is for that, all the way up to the elite venues. Uh, but I think you've got some really good stories out there, you know, who are already proving that, that it can be done. You know, the, to, to name drop too many people, you've got um, Andy at Stoke, who's now uh, five years fungicide free. You've got various golf courses we work with. You've always got Loughborough, who are really kind of pushing their KPIs as sustainability. Uh, Jim at Twickenham, um, and obviously Dave at, at Liverpool. So I think it, it is coming, but it will be it will be a long process, and there there needs to be quite a bit of research and, and companies communicating behind the scenes on that as well. Yeah, I certainly think you know maybe there should be some discussion groups set up and working groups and, and some sort of central coordination to that maybe. Mm. And, and I'm sure we'd, we'd be happy to, to engage with companies who are interested at that that type of level because it's kind of excuse the pun, but it's a bit of blue sky thinking. Yeah. But actually, it's becoming more of, of a, a probably a, a ticking issue, um, especially if government are going to set global targets. And obviously there'll be a, a UK facing target for emissions or um, energy use or whatever that may be. Mm. So it's, it's kind of um, a question I throw back out to the industry. Do we want to sort of have a target that we want to hit by, who knows, 2030, let's say. Mm. And, and if you kind of look at it that way, then it crystallizes the thinking. But we probably, if we're honest with ourselves, especially coming out of a pandemic, we're, we're all thinking short term right now. We're just yeah. trying to realign our businesses. So, you know, to be, to be able to think more widely, it's, it's going to take a bit of time. But I think everybody that I come into contact to has a, has a completely open mind to this, this area of the challenges that, that we face as individuals, as businesses and as sectors. Um, so, so definitely it's, it's one of the things that, that we'll be definitely as a board looking at going forwards. And then the, the, the other kind of um, topic, I know we're both we mentioned it a little bit earlier, is about um, encouraging more diverse people into the industry and how how we can make the, the industry more appealing to young people or how we can highlight this as a career choice. And I know you're, you've done a lot of work in, in the background to that with the young board and uh, schools to stadium. Um, and you're kind of looking at uh, pushing that forward over the next few years. But from a, a perspective of a young guy that kind of got into the industry, you're right what you said earlier. A lot of the speak, people I speak to in the industry are affiliated with sport. So, you know, I was a really keen golfer and footballer. A lot of my friends within the industry either were involved in football or golf, but weren't quite good enough or, you know, so but they still wanted to be in the industry. Through the industry, I think there's a lot of positives uh, that you can do, especially from a, a young person's aspect of, you know, being involved in sport, full stop, I think is a positive, but also the ability to travel, you know, the ability to to go, to have a solid kind of foundation in the UK of, of education and um, training courses um, and having options that because of the standard of, of UK groundsmanship and, and greenkeeping, that there are then uh, possibilities that open up worldwide, which I thought would be really attractive to, to young people to, who are looking at coming into the industry. Yeah, I mean, we, we've actually um, recently signed up a MOU with uh, International Greenkeepers, Great. for example, who've been doing a lot on social media. And you've got uh, Daryl over in Sydney University, and he's doing, doing a great job. And you've got Bradley Tennant, who I think worked with Daryl for a little bit at Sydney University pre-pandemic, um, and he's now back over here working um, in a school near Reading. So, you know, we've we've already got links to what what you've just said, and I think our position is to facilitate opportunity. Obviously, what we're trying to do is ramp up the opportunity to work in the UK in, in a domestic sense. But as you can clearly see, there's been so, so many success stories of ground staff going across to Europe, you know, whether that's, I won't name check them all because there's now too many of them, but, <laughs> you know, we've got a wonderfully exportable resource, which is called a professional grounds 
I'm not going to call it groundsman. It's it's it's, it's a grounds expert, mm-hmm. and they've got an enormously good resource behind them, which is the infrastructure that our industry has to support that. And I think that's a unique selling point around the globe. Mm. Uh, what we don't want to do is keep losing the best to different countries. We need to invest more in the UK to keep them. Yeah. But equally, yeah, when you're young, the attractiveness of travel is, is always prevalent until you probably hit your 30s and you may or may not be building families like, like your good self. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, while you've got the chance to, to go and experience life, go and experience it. Yeah. And don't, don't rest on your laurels. Well, but, I, th- I think it, it, it was something that, that, that I did, and I know you mentioned you went to, to America quite a bit. I went and spent um, a year or so out in Holland um, doing greenkeeping in, in my early 20s after my, my qualifications. And I found it such a, an eye-opening experience you know, is in character building and, you know, how they're doing it in different countries. So I felt like when I came back to the UK, I had a little bit extra, you know, that I picked up, if that makes sense. I think it just broadens your horizons. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I found that just going to different parts of the world, which, which I've been lucky enough to do as, as part of my role in, in this job. So whether it's going back to America, whether it's the um, STMA event that, that they run, um, whether it's Golf Course Greenkeepers Association in America. Um, but I've also been out and we've, we've established what is still called the IOG in, in the Czech Republic, for example, mm. which is a thriving conference every year until obviously the pandemic hit. But I've also been into countries that you'd expect to have a bit more infrastructure about them. I think we were talking before about France as an exception. You know, they, they don't recognize the profession of sports turf management but they do have the word jardinaire, hmm. uh, but it's very horticultural based. Whereas we've got a burgeoning, I think, sports turf sector, which is part of a wider horticultural industry as such, but actually is somewhat aligned to both the horticulture side, maybe even if you want to push it that way to agriculture, but also to support. So we kind of sit somewhere in between them. But you know, one, maybe one of our downfalls is there's too many bodies involved in the, the kind of promotion of grounds management per se, rather than one holistic group. Um, and that, that may be one of the legacy issues that, that needs to be, be looked at, is how, how do you get all those groups combined to influence government, to influence mm. policy, to actually break through some of the glass ceilings that do exist, um, to have that, that weight of voice as well. Yeah. So it can be it can be disparate. I mean, I think we've always tried to take a partnership approach to that. You know, where there's areas where we can join up and support other associations, we've done that. Um, and you know, there there are points where you, you might not align. But but I think, as, as we've said, I think there is there is loads of opportunity. One of the things I think we've got to get away from is actually thinking that nobody likes working in our industry. Actually. Our results showed that that was, uh, I think it's one in five felt that way. It's not uniform, it's not 100% that everybody feels bad about this sector or doesn't think it's a valuable sector to work in. Actually, there's a, there's a lot of good examples of people having great careers, enjoying their roles. But quite often, the things that make the news are the bad things. Yeah. You, you hear less about the good, you hear more about the bad. But I guess that's human nature. Yeah, bad news travels fast, doesn't it? Much faster than, than positive. And we're, we're encouraging more people into the industry. Are we, it, it's obviously groundsmanship as a, as a role and a basis, but then are there ways of making, um, you know, more aware that there are different uh, sectors, there's different jobs involved within our industry? It's a great one to be involved with. I know there's, uh, people gone on and done very well in different sectors you know uh, just naming a, a few I hope she doesn't mind but kind of Kate Entwistle on, on her side and, and what she does you know I think is unbelievable you've got the kind of uh, development side with different companies you've got the the marketing side there's there's many facets to the to the industry that we're in definitely well, well Kate was uh, a great member of the GMA board for many years 
Um, so, I, so I've worked with Kate, so I, I endorse everything you say about Kate. Yeah, she's great. Um, yeah. she, she'll hate this conversation, by the way, because she's not one for praise. Um, <laughs> but like you say, I think it's just identifying good people and trying to promote good people. Um, so we can obviously facilitate that through various mediums. I mean, obviously, every year at Sortex we put an education program together and we get great speakers along to that and you know that there's a wealth of experience that come along and talk and that's from a variety of backgrounds but absolutely like like i was talking about this review of the young board i mean going forwards it might not need to be a board it might be you call it a youth panel for example which could have people from dispersed backgrounds you know like we said earlier it doesn't have to be just centric to the role of ground staff per se it could be people working in sales, people working in marketing, people working in the pathology like Kate um, does, people working in soil science. Um, anybody that's connected to this industry should be able to promote the role that they've got. Mm. And what we can do is profile any of those roles. And certainly we're, we're rebuilding, as we speak, our website. And, and I think you'll see it, it'll be a lot more dynamic and a proactive website than currently is in situ. And, and again, I mean, I know that we're always open to criticism. We have to accept that being the sort of body that we, that we are. But we have a very small team, I think, achieving quite a lot in quite difficult circumstances. And, and I'm really proud of the team that we've got because I know that they think and act in a very proactive way. We, we kind of get bored if we're not making progress every six months. So we always check and challenge ourselves and we always sort of, we're probably our own worst enemy. I, I'm definitely, I, I, everybody can criticize me, but I'm the best at it. I, I'm a really fierce critic yeah. of myself. And, it, and it's pushing yourself all the time to, to do better, to be better, to make advances and, and be bold with decisions. You know, have the courage of your convictions, trust your instincts. And there are plenty of people out there with those characteristics. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, and I do think is you, you especially handled it very well with um, with development and with the, the, the strategy side and, and being open to conversations. I'm looking forward to the conversations that we have over over the next few years. But going forward, how can groundsmen or people who want to get involved in the industry or um, want to be involved with the GMA, what can they do, Jeff? Uh, can they get in contact? Who's the best person to get in contact with? How can they help? How can we support? What, what can we do? The more members that join, the more we can do. Simple as that, because it creates income for us. There's no secret to that formula. There are a lot of people who, if you like, have an opinion about us, but never join us. And I, I've always been a believer, if you want to make change, get on the inside and make change. So I think... Joining the GMA only strengthens the voice. And if you feel your voice isn't being heard, then get involved. The world's changing. We used to operate very much on a face-to-face -face local structure, which is what we call our branch network. And then we had a regional structure on top of that. And that fed into a, a national board structure. As I say, the world's changing. We, we do a lot now through, if you look, tap, townhouse approach, so using the medium of Zoom or Teams or whatever, you can now have meetings where you don't have to travel. Locally, our, our articles actually are written in a way that mirrors our board structure, so if you wanted to set up a regional structure, um, all you need to do is look at our articles and it'll tell you how to do it. And then we have qualifying aspects to that, which is the number of people at regional level, number of people at branch level. But essentially what we're trying to do is cover the sectors that sports turf management um, relates to, so be that voluntary level, be that professional stadium, be that schools, universities, education generally, the local authority sector for example. All of those bases are covered at board level, so we have representatives from each of those. And then you need your experts that can manage business. So that could be marketing, it could be finance, it could be um, and we think human resources, really big thing actually, which often goes missed. And it's not just about the old traditional committee approach, which is probably chairman and treasurer and secretary. It's kind of opening your mind to what can you do to affect change at a good level on a consistent basis. 
getting people to volunteer, tough, really tough. But actually, there's a lot of really good volunteers who kind of show the way to others. Um, you probably need to give, if you wanted to get involved on the tools, so to speak, as a volunteer, expect 12 hours a week to do that. If you want to get involved from time to time with the GMA, you can be a volunteer for 30 seconds. You could elect in March to put out hashtag grounds week and you volunteered to do that. That thinking and that action means you've made a difference. Or you might want to try and get on our board. And, and every year, you know, there, there will be people coming in and out of our board. So there's opportunities at every level, really. So you can get involved for as much as you want or as little as you want. But trying to work cohesively and trying to work in a proactive, constructive way would be brilliant. Mm. Not always the case in our sector. Yeah, yeah. in life. <laughs> but I think that's a great um, I think that's a great message to put out there Jeff and uh, I said I really appreciate the time that you spent today to, to give us a bit of an insight into the, the GMA and, and your thoughts going forward and where you've come from and it'd be great to jump on again in a year or so's time see what's changed see what's happened see what kind of developments have, have progressed as well but yeah, I think that was absolutely spot on. I thought it was great, what, you know, the conversation. Uh, so I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Jeff. Thanks for listening to Advanced Grass Solutions Turf Hub Podcast. For more information, visit advancedgrass.com or follow us on socials using the handle at advancedgrass.com.